there. This is Abby at Recovery Radio, and I'm going to share a simple secret that will make you smile all day. Just go to www.recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. The larger the amount you donate, the bigger your smile will be. Feel the power of recovery for yourself and become part of the solution. Go to recoveryradio.net right now and start your day with a smile. Like alcoholic. Friday, September 7th, 1985, and that just surprised the dickens out of all the people that had been watching me come and go for the six years prior to that. Uh, matter of fact, today I sponsor the son of one of those, the, the guy who gave me what I hope is my last desire chip, you know, and Bob Sr. told me if he had to give me another one, he would give it to me in suppository form. Since... <laughs> since the current form of application wasn't working. This is a tremendous uh, privilege, honor for me here. I've been raised in Alcoholics Anonymous and mentored in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, to love and appreciate my brothers and sisters and and the Alamon family groups and uh, I want to thank you for all that you've added to my life. Uh, Many of you have helped me many times in many dark places, and uh, I want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, and uh, I hope to express a little bit of that gratitude this afternoon. I, uh, let's get sober quick. I grew up in a college town, Iowa City, Iowa, a Big Ten University town. Uh, when I grew up there, there were about 50,000 permanent residents, about 25,000 at the University of Iowa. It's kind of a little beaver cleaver kind of community. Uh, I was told to stop saying beaver by a gal in New York. She says, Mike, nobody knows who beaver is anymore. Uh, Say, say the Huxtables. So I've, I've, I've now officially out of date. But uh, no, it was the kind of place where uh, you know you, you didn't lock your house up unless you were going out of town on vacation. You could leave your car keys in the car at least until you know I started driving. And uh, it was uh, was great. People watched out for each other's kids and that sort of thing. And. I really identified with Aaron. See, I was, before I found alcohol, I was the good kid. Now, I've always been a power seeker. I knew I needed some edge. I needed some power. And what I used to do for getting power was I was the good kid. I, uh, I worked in the principal's office. I was part of all the or- appropriate organizations. I, I got excellent grades. And uh, more to the point, if I came over to your house for dinner, as soon as we were through eating, I would jump up and begin clearing the plates from the table and carry them into the kitchen and start rinsing them in the sink until your mom said, why can't you be like that nice Lorenz boy? You know, yes, that's what I was looking for. And uh, I found my first real drink of alcohol that wasn't a sip-off dad's beer or something like that. When I was about 11 years old, I got, I got enough vodka that the miracle that's described on page 27 of the big book occurred for me. And on page 27, uh, 
Carl Young is talking to an appropriately named drunk by the name of Roland Hazard. Uh, And he's describing a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience to him because he's told him, look, I've tried everything. You've been here six months. My, all the regular psychiatric stuff isn't going to work with you. And then he goes on and he says, every now and then, once, every once in a while, I did these emotional upheavals or the ideas and emotions that were the guiding forces in the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a new set of conceptions takes hold. And that's looking back and found out exactly what happened to 11-year-old Mike. Uh, I felt the effect of the alcohol, and the alcohol was I didn't need to be Mr. Little Mr. Goody Two-Shoes anymore. Screw that stuff. And my, my folks were just amazed within a very short time what, uh, what had happened. is like demonic possession in their household. What had happened, I'm the oldest of four kids. Uh, I won't tell you I came from a normal family, but I came from a functional family. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, their, their little kid that had been the apple of their eye is turning the whole household upside down. And I continued to tornado like that for a long time. A big part of my events in that family were simply the fact that uh, when the guy that helped me approach those events, he said, Mike, tell me what it was like to have you for a brother. Tell me what it was like to have you for a son. And what I did is I sucked the oxygen out of the room. There wasn't room for them. I lived like I was an only child. And uh, the drinking piece... Uh, Probably this would tell you how I drank as well as anything else. I'm a, I'm a teenager. I've, I've recently got a driver's license, and I've got, I'm out drinking with a buddy. We've got some beer in the car, and we're riding around out in the county, uh, you know, planning what we're going to say to girls and drinking beer and, and riding light. And all of a sudden, uh, the squad car lights are on behind me. Now, keep in mind, this is the day before they had two-man squad cars and all the stuff they got today. This was Barney Fife that was pulling me over. So I pulled over, and I turned to my buddy, and I said, watch this. So I got out of the car, and, you know, this guy knows who I am. I'm one of the local kids. I get out of the car, wave at him, go back. So when I get, get close to him, I slam him up against the squad car and take his gun away from me. Uh, and then I turn around and hand it back to him. Uh, I've had a couple cops in audiences like this that say they would have shot me on the spot, but uh, fortunately uh, that wasn't the mode there. And my, my calculation worked. The guy turned me loose. See, I figured that he was going to be way too embarrassed that the kid took his gun away to arrest me and take me back to the sheriff's station and have to put up with the ribbon from all of his buddies that a kid took his gun away. Uh, no way that's going to happen. So he turned me loose. And the most important part of that was my friend was watching every bit of it, and he just made a beeline back to school and told everybody in school I had my reputation you know, the next day in school. Uh, 
went, sir. Yeah. I'm the guy. And that's the way that... So, uh, well, maybe one more story here. Uh, I, this is a high-risk story to tell with this audience. But, uh, I, you know... Like I said, I acted like I was a, uh, an only child, but you know the fact the fact was that I you know I had this sense of entitlement, and one of the things I believed I was entitled to was uh, a new Corvette, uh, and my dad didn't see it the same way. As a matter of fact, my dad bought my mother a tan Buick Electra hardtop. Uh, can, is there anything lamer than a tan Buick, for God's sakes? I mean, it's lame. And, uh, and just the injustice of this, uh, you know, overwhelmed me. And uh, my mom was always my ally in my schemes. And uh, so she, she quickly lends me this car to ostensibly go on a date with. So it's Saturday night, and I take off with mom's new car. And, of course, I end up out at the lake, and I'm drinking with my friends. And, and you know, as, as we drink, you know, the sense of injustice just builds and grows. And so sometime late that night, I turned to my friend, and his dad happened to have a machine shop. And so Jerry and I went down to his dad's machine shop, and I fired up an acetylene torch and cut the top off that car, and I had to convertible that I was entitled to. Now imagine my parents the next morning. They, they've got my siblings gathered together and they're going to take them to church and they come out into the garage and there's kind of the smoking hulk of mom's car there with big brothers draped naked across the front seat. They later found the top of that car and made a sort of repair it. They never did find my clothes. So, that's it. so I, I guess I, are we down with the fact that I didn't drink well? And it didn't, you know, it's just the variations of episodes through the years. And I had this arc where it, it seemed to, you know, life seemed to be going well. I seemed to be a success. I, uh, I was talking to Aaron last night. I spent some time in his town down there, uh, first first doing very well, and then finally at the Coliseum Motel down there on, on Independence, which was not a nice place. As a matter of fact, you know, there's uh, doesn't usually make it into the story, but you want to talk about the loneliness and isolation. I'm staying at this motel down there, and I'm paying hookers to come in and just talk to me. Because I can't relate. I've got to pay somebody to come and talk to me. Nothing else. I'm that. I'm that cut off and that that isolated. Eventually, the miracle happens, and and uh, uh, I get sober. And like so many, I always thought that sober was the answer. And it seems to be now with my experience that if sober's your answer, you may not be an alcoholic. Sober's kind of a side effect for alcoholics. See, it turns out the man that saved my life 
Well, let me back up a little bit. I came, I, the last, I started out at CNC Treatment Centers when I had a big job, good money, uh, lots of benefits, uh, and then just kind of trended down over that six-year period until finally my last stops at, at, at a veterans center. And I'm shelled out at this point. And I've been to AA, and I've been to all these places. Doesn't seem like it's working. Uh, people I drank with, they're sober five, six, seven years, something. Not working for me. In that last place, the guy that had the impact on me was an orderly. He came in. Uh, I was too sick, too damaged physically to get in their treatment program right away, so they put me in the ICU unit of the hospital. And this little orderly came in, and he didn't come in with a speech or anything else. He just came in and he said, uh, it looks like from your chart you may not make it here. I need to know where you want your personal effects set. And uh, that's a message with depth and weight. No, he wasn't begging me not to drink. He wasn't trying to entice me into his treatment program. He, uh, the miracle was he told me the truth that I recognized it. I, uh, I've institutionalized well by this point, see, because if, you to, if you're smart, and most of us are, you go to a, a treatment center or two, and in prison, you know exactly what to say. Uh, you, you know what behavior and attitudes to exhibit to show that, that you're getting better. And so I know how to go inside a treatment center now and become teacher's pet and get extra privileges and do all this kind of stuff. And I think I'm smart, except it's killing me. Where I end up was with that orderly, and then with two pivotal decisions for me. What a, what's going to be different about this time? What's going to be different? Well, what's got to... What it boiled down to is I've never really been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been just somebody keeping a chair warm in a meeting. So I made a decision that if I survived and got out of there, I was going to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in the fullest sense of that word. And then I, I always resisted what I called the spiritual side of this stuff. Uh, and... Uh, decided that I was willing to uh, try and form some kind of a relationship with a power greater than myself. So there I am, the old war hero kneeling by the bunk in the VA place, and the only prayer I can come up with is, now I lay me down to sleep. That's the best I can do. But you know, it's wonderful because, as our book says, God doesn't make hard terms. Got out of that treatment center, and uh, I uh, eventually made my way back to Indianapolis, and I became my began my career as a junior guru at AA. Uh, and what this looks like is I'm going to 11 meetings a week because that's what you could go kind of the maximum in India you could go to at that time, and I'm getting a hold of every service position I can and I don't miss a conference and I don't miss a edit. Whatever's going on, I'm, I'm right there in the thick of it. And I believe that I'm doing Alcoholics Anonymous 
uh, I, uh, I got a new, brand new career. I was completely unwelcome at the old career. It was kind of like a godfather clock. They had this very closed, uh, closed industry, and uh, they, they told me they wished me well, but never to try and seek employment in that line of work again. And so I found an entirely different line of work and began to succeed in that and met and married a wonderful woman in Alcoholics Anonymous and she she had a, uh, a year and a half old son so I got a, I got a, I got the postcard picture family and I'm on my way and oh the other thing I did whatever junior gurus got to do I started my own meeting. Uh, because, you know, nobody else's meeting quite did it correctly, so you've got to have your own signature meeting. I've since got to sponsor myself, you know. <laughs> this guy started free, you know. At least they neuter cats, you know. But anyway. <laughs> See, yeah, that's that's beautiful. See, if you stay sober, sooner or later, somebody like you is going to walk across the room and ask you to sponsor them, and you're going to you're going to get to see yourself as you never saw yourself before. I uh, life's wonderful, and in my fifth anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous is approaching, and I the obsession to drink, uh, thoughts of drinking have been completely removed. But my secret is that I'm trying to find a way to kill myself with the sincerity that I never had when I was drinking. Uh, I was more hopeless five years from a drink with all this exterior success than I had ever been when I was drinking. And what that was for me was that, you know, when I was drinking, and, and maybe some of the people have said this to you or you have said it to somebody else, you know, and all my life it seemed like people say, Mike, if you just didn't drink, you know, you'd be the valedictorian at this high school. If you didn't drink, you know, we'd promote you into senior management of this country. company. Mike, if, you know, you didn't drink, I'd, I'd keep this engagement ring. Mike, if you didn't drink, fill in the blank. And now I haven't had a drink for five years. And I'm, I'm hollow on the outside, inside. That the wife that I, that I love uh, is saying things to me like, Mike, being married to you is the loneliest thing I've ever done. Mike, do you suppose if I let you sponsor me, I can have one of those intimate chats I hear you having with the guys you sponsor? I know more about what you think, feel, and believe by listening to your side of a telephone conversation than by anything you say to me. Andrew, my stepson, buddy, always been a very wise old soul, always been one of my good teachers. Four years old, this kid, I'm picking him up from daycare, and, and he turns to me and he says, you know, Mike, I think things would work better for you if you said the second thing that comes to your mind. <laughs> you know? And 
then not, not long after that, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to be a dad again, and Lori told me, she says, you know, if you pay attention to him, he'll teach you. And I'll be darned, you know. Not long after that, he, he says, Mike, you need to understand, I've got plenty of friends. I need you to be my dad. So I got my job description. But it didn't look like that then. I, 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 the, the image I can't get out of my mind, four, he's four years old. It's Sunday afternoon. I'm backing out of the, starting, the back out of the driveway of our house. And Andrew comes up to the side of the car and he says, Mike, Mike, he says, can't you stay? I, I'd really like to play with you this afternoon. And I looked that kid in the eye and said, oh, Andrew, I would really love to but I've got some really important work to do at the office, and I'll be home as soon as I can. And I backed out of the drive, drove down to my office, turned on my computer, and started playing solitaire. See, I'm terrified of that kid. I can't be with that kid. I love him, but I don't know how to... This is sober. This is not drinking behavior. And so, obviously, sobriety fixes a lot of things for a lot of people. It apparently doesn't for me. And what I didn't know uh, was that five years away from a drink, sitting in a million meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was dying from untreated alcoholism. Because what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous was very much like what I did years ago at the University of Iowa. Went over to the field house, signed up for all my classes, Bought my books at the student bookstore, joined the fraternity, put the books in the closet, started partying, and if you ran into me on campus and asked me what I was doing, I'd tell you, well, I'm a pre-law student here at the University of Iowa, sir. And that was technically true, except I was rarely going to class. And what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't miss a dance, didn't miss a function, didn't miss an intergroup meeting, didn't miss any of the meetings, I just missed the program. But that didn't keep me from slogan slanging, you know. Oh, acceptance is the answer, you know. Uh, turn that over, uh, you know, whatever. But if you asked me how to do any of those things, I wouldn't have known what to tell you. So further from a drink than I ever imagined I was going to ever be able to get, the man I disliked most in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, turned out to save, turned up to save my life. And, you know, I've come to find out since that God's got a sense of humor, and if what you've got is a bad attitude and resentment, that God's completely capable of working with that. And uh, so I was delivered into the, to the hands of now the old-timer in my current home group uh, and so forth, and uh, who's a, today a dear friend, and we do some of this stuff together. Uh, but it wasn't that way then. I went to my first meeting in my current home group, because I heard this guy speak from the podium, and I knew what he was saying. It was a lie. He was talking about selling his house, cashing in his retirement plan, and a bunch of other things to go make amends and get square with the world. And I knew people didn't really do that. So even though his home group was like 30 miles the other side of town, I went over there, and my sole purpose for going, I didn't want a thing that guy had, and I didn't want anything to do with that meeting. I wanted to go over there 
and get the goods on him and expose him as a liar, a fraud, and run him out of Alcoholics Anonymous if I could. See what happens, you know. I, uh, God had other plans, and uh, eventually, Gary gave me my first experience with the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in depth. And uh, I uh, later, one of, one of the men he sponsored became a, a mentor for me uh, and uh, helped me a great deal. Uh, Don P. from Aurora, Colorado. Uh, and Don's gone now, but uh, Don was one of the ones that uh, taught me so much about uh, loving and paying attention to Al-Anon and, and, and guiding me in that direction and uh, what I was overlooking and missing there. So, uh, with the time left, I want to talk about two things here. I, uh, I want to talk about a, a prayer, and then I want to talk about an event. And the prayer, you know, unfortunately that marriage that I was telling you about uh, ended. But uh, with the help, actually, of, uh, although we were both alcoholics, uh, a member of Gary's wife, a longtime member of Almont, helped me a great deal. I mean, she pulled me aside and... Uh, when we found out that the, the divorce I didn't want to have happen was going to happen, she pulled me aside and, and helped me. And she says, look, got, got me right and up against the wall. She says, look, you've got to aggressively practice the 10th tradition now. Uh, you're going to have no opinions on outside issues. And everything, she's almost everything she's going to do from now on is an outside issue. You're not going to have an opinion on whether she keeps the house, sells the house, what she does with the retirement plan, any of that stuff, that's none of your business. And she helped me uh, walk through a lot of that stuff. And it was invaluable. And we were able to have a respectful divorce. And, and it wasn't long after that that we, uh, uh, I was allowed, to, I became a three-day-a-week dad now, and so I had Andrew three days a week. And, uh, one night, it's a, it was a Friday or Saturday, I don't really remember which, and uh, I picked Andrew up, and he was going to spend a few days with me, and he says, Mike, I'm tired of those kids' places. Uh, I want to go to a real restaurant tonight. I want No McDonald's, no Applebee's, none of that stuff. She, he says, I want to go to a real restaurant with a tablecloth. And so I take Andrew to a... I know how to listen by now. I take him to a real restaurant, and we're having dinner, and uh, it's going well because he's, he's fun to be with. And all of a sudden, I look up, and I look around the restaurant, and oh, my God, it's full of couples in love. Everybody here is with a sweetheart or with somebody, and I'm with a six-year-old, for God's sakes. And the self-pity tsunami just washes over me. I, I mean, the, the injustice of all this is just terrible. And uh, so now I've got better behavior than I used to have. I, uh, I treat him correctly, and we finish our dinner, and I take him home. Uh, we, you know, watch a video and 
you know, give him his bath and put him in bed and tell him a story. And as soon as he's out, uh, I'm running into the, the dining room and whipping out my pencil and paper, and I'm writing inventory, and I'm upset. I'm really honked off at, uh, at what God's done to me. And uh, I'll let you hear exactly how that rolled. I don't hold this out as an example of really the great way to do this, but uh, I'm here as a result of a lot of imperfect work, uh, persistently followed by more work. Uh, and this particular piece uh, was, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm resenting God. So there it is. God's in column one. Here, uh, of course, I wrote a prayer, God, please help me. Go figure. Uh, I resent God. I, why do I resent God? Well, I am resenting God because I don't have the relationship that I want to have with a woman. I think God's going to give me the choice to either have a sick relationship or no relationship. I'm lonely. People I sponsor with less recovery are ahead of me in having better relationships than I am. I'm afraid that God will keep me in this pain because I'll be more useful to others than if I have the relationship I fantasize about. How's that for self-pity? I feel like God has given me a gift of communicating with the others, and the price of the gift is my happiness. I'm mad because I know that only God can help me, and I don't believe he will. Turns out, the only thing I need to do to die if not a physical death, a spiritual death, is just decide that whatever I'm involved in, God that isn't interested in or wouldn't help me with it. That's all I need to do. It cuts off my oxygen line right there. All right, well, what's this effect? Well, it affects my self-esteem. I feel like a phony because I might sell out my principles for a comfortable relationship. For example, I might do something like hitting on a newcomer as a result, I feel like a phony. Don says, Mike, that's because you're a phony. <laughs> who, who knew? I love that man. I can do Don, I feel so guilty. You are. <laughs> I feel so ashamed. You should be. Distorting my sex relations, I'm having an increasingly emotionally unsatisfied sex-only relationship. I decided that I was going to outsource my sex life. And what this looked like was that I connected with a, a like-minded gal, and this, this was more than 20 years ago, so it was... No, no dates, no flowers, no cards, no dinners, no movies. We would just get together and play racquetball. And the code word, because this was before cell phones or texting, we would call each other secretaries and so forth and get on the calendar for racquetball. And this seemed like the answer to me. That's, that's what I'm saying. Just... Uh, and the good news, the good news I found out later was that it wasn't working. Don told me, he says, Mike, what if you were the guy that that worked for? What if you could live that kind of an empty life and use somebody and, and, and be okay with that? He says, I know you feel awful about this, but that's wonderful news. 
affects my personal relations, keep me jealous of others, comparing company with what they've got. I'm unwilling to share my pain. I feel uh, flawed, uh, apart from indifferent. My unbalanced drive in this area makes me vulnerable to getting drunk. Compromising my principles will get me drunk, and I know I don't have the strength not to do this. Column four, my mistake. Well, I'm not willing to give this to God because I don't think he's interested or willing to help me. That's sentence. I'm willing to sell out all my principles in order to get relief. I want this right now, not this right. I'm impatient. I'm not willing to take an honest look at what this fantasy relation. I'm pretending that this, if I just get this piece of my life, everything will be fine. And that's a lie. I want somebody else to fill me up and feel, me, feel safe and secure, and only God can do that. So I called Gary right away. This, this happens in the middle of hours. I don't have to take weeks or months or anything to, you know, we're having dinner. I'm coming home. I'm writing the inventory. I'm on the phone right now with Gary across town. Then I called Don in Denver and, you know, and so on and so forth. And Don had a silly answer. He listened to this and made a few comments that I shared with him. And said to me, Mike, uh, I'd like you to start saying this prayer. And I said, okay. He says, uh, God, please teach me about love. And I said, well, thanks, Don. And I hung up. And I uh, called somebody else. But part of my deal with Don was that if I followed his direction and I didn't like the results, I got to call up and complain. So I called up a few weeks later, and I says, Don, you need to know I don't think much of your damn prayer. Hey, just tell me about that, cowboy. And I says, well, it's like this. The only, the only woman I really had something going for and, and really kind of liked her, her company has transferred her out of town, and she's gone. And then I went to the doctor the other day, and he said my blood pressure was high, and he gave me some medicine that's made me impotent, you know. And uh, Don just laughed, and he said, well, you misunderstood that prayer, didn't you? He says, I, I, you thought that prayer was God kept you a woman, didn't you? And he says, prayer is God, please teach me about love. He says, Mike, you're a man that knows a great deal about sex and nothing about love. Please work with me on so, because I loved him, I did. And it wasn't very long before I did fall wildly in love. And uh, it was with my stepson. He and his mom had always been a little closer and had been a little more special. And we'd never had a bad relationship. But all of a sudden, all the barriers went away. And they've stayed away ever since. And then not too long after that, I, uh, I realized I loved my ex-wife. Now, I, uh, I didn't want to marry her again. Uh, but the best thing I can describe to you is that God restored her to the place she had in my heart before we got married and all the stuff started. Matter of fact, one of the first things she and I could do together was go to a PTA meeting. And we were coming home from that PTA meeting. And I said, you know, Lori, I said, I think the only bad feelings I have about the divorce is that 
it interrupted our friendship. She looked at me with a grin on her face, just eerie. She says, you still don't get it, do you? I says, what? She says, it was the marriage that interrupted our friendship. Oh. See, we were two people that were wired and well suited to be each other's close friends, but we're alcoholics, so marriage seemed like it was more, so we took it one step extra. And uh, God had just put it back the way it had been before. And so I'm going on and on and on with this prayer, and eventually, I, uh, when I wasn't looking, the woman in my dreams did show up. In fact, I, I wouldn't have even dreamed for this woman. She was just out of sight. And uh, I, I first met her uh, going to meetings with her and her husband and uh, did workshops with, with her and Richard and, and so forth. And we're all good friends. And uh, back in 2000, uh, he... Uh, got a terrible diagnosis of pancreatic cancer on Labor Day and died November 10th that year. It just ate him alive in, in months' time. And so the friendships with Linda continued, and then one day, maybe a year or so later, we're, uh, we'd done a workshop for some people in Indianapolis and walked out. And, uh, she was She was a... She was an alcoholic, but uh, she had married Pearl and former bond, and, and uh, uh, we'd, gotten, uh, we'd gotten the traditions between her and, and Don and everything else. We'd really gotten those active in, uh, in our life. I mean, uh, anyway, Linda, Linda walks up to me after that we did this workshop in the parking lot, and she says, Mike, you need to know I love you. And I said, well, that's nice. She says, no. You know me? I mean, I really love you. She says, now, how about a real hug, not one of those air AA hugs, you know? And uh, I just couldn't believe my good fortune. And we, we went on, we continued on and became engaged and, and so forth and, and, and had lots of fun together. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this, it was really, she was, she was a spiritual teacher to me like you wouldn't believe. I, uh, we hadn't been dating, uh, I think it was less than a month, and I showed up over at her place to pick her up. By the way, she was very clear, I am not going to be your shack em up, honey. We're not living together until we're married. And, uh, okay. Uh, and I show up over there, and she, she hands me this piece of paper. She says, I've written out the primary purpose from my point of view for our relationship. I'd like to see yours very soon. <laughs> A real no-slack approach. I mean, I've never had that one happen before. And she used to say that the one she started with was so, so detailed that it described the color, clarity, and weight of the diamond I was supposed to produce. And, Mine was so vague that could it describe my relationship with my cat. And, but then we got to practice the second tradition and, and, and build one together. And it was bliss. And my prayer had been answered. And uh, we uh, 
about this time five years ago. We had our home group retreat, and after that retreat, uh, matter of fact, Tom and Juanita from Santa Fe had been there uh, to facilitate, and uh, I was going out to Santa Fe right shortly after the retreat, and I, I had like a 6.30 flight, and I, I didn't want her to take me. Uh, I would leave my car. She lived near the airport, so I would leave my car frequently to her house to save expenses for conferences and so forth. And she said, no, 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 I won't do that. So she got up and she says, you know, you don't mind I'm in my PJs, do you? No. And uh, so she drives me to the airport and gives me a kiss and sends me off to Santa Fe. And uh, came home a week later and uh, she wasn't there to pick me up at the airport. I called and this and that. And we had a little squabble over the phone while I was going. I'd been off up at Angel Fire in the mountains, and I turned off my phone so I wouldn't you know, eat the battery up searching for a signal up there where there wasn't any. And, and she thought I, I was ignoring her and playing with my friends. And thank God for the tent, for the tent step that we straightened that out. So my first thought is, well, gee, I didn't think she was still mad about that, but maybe. So I, I eventually I get a cab and I went over to her house and I, I've got a key and I go in and uh, it's 9.30 in the evening. Uh, I find her in the bathroom. She's collapsed that morning while she was getting ready for work. Her coffee's sitting there on, by the sink. Uh, she's, a, she's conscious, but she, she can't talk. She's find, we find out she's had a stroke. We head off to neural uh, intensive care for five days and looked like she was going to get better. And then we got a sudden turn for the worse and, and we're told that we had to go to hospice. Uh, and I'm way short on the story here, but uh, I thought that prayer was turned into ashes in my mouth. Oh, yeah, teach me about love. Give, it, give, give me everything and then do this to me. And thank God for what Don had taught me, because Don said, Mike, he says, as near as I can tell, there will always be at least two voices operating in your head. There will be the, the Mike that really wants to be the right kind of guy and do the right thing and, and, and show up for other people. And then there's the selfish, self-centered snot. He says, you can't make either one of those go away. But he says it's like having a wet drunk in a meeting. You can't shut them up. In fact, the more you try and shut the wet drunk up in a meeting, usually the louder they get. But you don't let them run the meeting either. So because I, I knew this duality, I was not robbed of the last hours of my life with Linda. You know, I was able to beat Fred. The voice that said, wait a minute, she's way younger than you. She's, she's, she's supposed to be taking care of you while you die. And everything else. This isn't the plan. This is wrong. I can thank you for sharing. You know, and I can, I can be the, I, I don't have to look back in, on those hours as wasted hours with her as she stepped into her next life. I, uh, I thought the prayer had probably reached its end. And uh, since then, it turns out that uh, I had new lessons. 
my lessons were now are accepting love from others, you know. Uh, and that was really terrifying. See, because when I'm the person dispensing the love, I, disp- I decide how much there's going to be, how long it's going to last, and what it's going to look like. Right? When I'm allowing you to love me, you're doing, making those decisions. When are you going to hold up your hand and say, well, I think that's about enough love for you, Mike. So I get to have this experience, and since then I've, I've, I've had a, I've had another marvelous experience, and uh, that prayer has been going on since 1992. So I don't, I, I haven't quit with it yet. Uh, and what, what the current experience over the last several years has been the wonderful, wonderful friendships that I've had with my sisters out here in the world. I've, I've, got, I've got a collection of women friends that it's second to none, and uh, I call them my friends without benefits. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I, I get, I've gotten to learn, learn so much from you and experience so much from you uh, that it's been a real gift. So, see, when from a little dinner with a kid, if we'll follow, if I'll put myself, what's it say, when we placed ourselves in God's hands? Linda's famous promise was, follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently come to live in a new and wonderful world, regardless of your current circumstances. And that's my experience. I don't know where this little piece of stuff's going to take me. God seems to just take my garbage and recycle it. I want to tell you very quickly about an amendment because maybe some of you, like myself, have been involved in some behavior with kids that that wasn't good. Uh, during my upscale drinking days, I was uh, in a relationship with a, a gal by the name of Jan and uh, uh, she had two small daughters, Summer and Erica. They were two years old and four years old when I showed up. And their dad was, you know, your classic violent alcoholic. He was, he was a biker. When he, when he, the last time the kids saw him, they were, had been in a grocery store, were sitting in the car outside the grocery store, and he came up with a length of chain and smashed all the windows out of the car and left them covered with broken glass and rode off and ended up in the Arizona, and uh, I showed up, and I'm driving a luxury car and wearing a cashmere coat, and I got a bottle of Bordeaux under my arm instead of a six-pack, but I'm still alcoholic. I'm, I'm, I'm tornadoing these lives, and so Jan and I were together for about five years with these kids. And everything going on, and, and Jan is still my barber today. God, go figure! And as a matter of fact, she tells me anytime I go to these conferences and tell you if you need to see a demonstration of God's love, realize that she can have me in a barber chair with a razor near my throat, and I get out alive. <laughs> but I thought because Jan and I never really lost, we'd split up, but we never lost contact. That making amends with her was going to be an easy deal. And so I, I, I sat down 
to make amends with her, and uh, I did what we do. Uh, now, the way I'm told to make amends is the first thing I need to tell you is that you're square with me. I can't come seeking forgiveness if I'm not offering it. And as my ex-wife so succinctly put it, Mike, you're the kind of guy who puts rocks in snowballs. So it was very important for me to put people off their guard, to let them know up front that I wasn't looking for anything here. So first thing you'll hear from me when I make amends to you is you're square with me, or some version of that. And then the next thing you'll hear from me was I was wrong, not sorry, wrong. And I thought that was picky. Come to find out, time after time, I've had guys say, you know, Mike, I've known you 25 years. I've heard you say you were wrong or sorry a million times. Or as you heard you say you were sorry a million times. I've never heard you just flat out admit you were wrong about anything. So those words had power. And I said, here's what I'm wrong about. And I told Jan what I was wrong about. And then I said, but I'm so self-centered. I don't know how this affected you or what I did, what else, you know, what the impact was or other things that I did that I don't even have any clue about. Tell me about that. And tell me, if you will, anything I can do to square the books between us. And I shut up and I listen and I don't argue and I don't defend myself. And so uh, I did that with Jan and, and I said, well, you know, tell me, tell me about your side of this. And she says, well, Mike, she says, I can see you're a, a really good dad. Because this, at this time, I'm bringing Andrew into the barber shop. And she, she says, I can see the way Andrew is around you, and I can tell he loves you a great deal, and he's not afraid of you at all. And you're obviously a good dad, and that really pisses me off. She says, my girls deserve that from you, and you didn't give it to them. You ripped them off. And she went on to explain to me in detail how the cow ate the cabbage there. And so she and I got square, and I said, well, obviously I've harmed the girls. What do you think I ought to do there? And by this time, they're early teenagers. And she said, first she didn't want me to do anything. Then she said, okay, I'll tell you what. If you want, write them a letter. And if they want to have anything to do with you, it will be up, up to them. And so uh, I will... Uh, mission to share that letter with you. Dear Summer, I'm writing to do what I can to set right the harm that I did during the years that I was in relationship with your mom. I've chosen to type this rather than phone for two reasons. First, my handwriting is pretty hard to read, and second, because I want you to have something tangible that you can look at later when life may be treating you rough. It turns out I didn't really know then, but because I've worked with a lot of men since, that particularly with kids, they need something that, that, that you can't just go vomit amends on them. Uh, they, they need time to process this stuff. Think about it. Consider it and to let them come back to you in their time. Uh, to tell the truth, I'm tempted to just let things stay the way they are because your mom tells me that you have a few good memories of the time we spent together. Part of me says, why mess with that? 
The best answer I have is that I love you and I'm certain deep in my heart whether you know it yet or not, I've done you harm. I'm sure you're aware during those years we were together, I was an active alcoholic. Maybe we put this next part in bold italics. Let me be very clear that this in no way whatsoever relieves me of responsibility for my actions. I used alcohol and drugs because they were the only things I knew that could give me relief from the constant fear I felt. I was drawing you and the family because I desperately wanted to love and be loved. But I was also scared to death at the prospect of being responsible. Emotionally, it felt like I had one foot on the gas and the other on the brake. I'm sure that it was hard for you to figure out what was real. Is the real like the one who wants to love me or the one who pushes me away? You weren't crazy. I was. You were a wonderful, lovable child, and you had every right to expect consistent love, emotional support, and parenting from me. What you got instead was fear, chaos, confusion, and abandonment. I want you to know that I didn't fail to give you those things because you were unlovable or undeserving, but because I was a sick and frightened man incapable of giving. If you feel emotionally ripped off, it's because you were. If you feel abandoned, you're not crazy. You were. I know at some deep emotional level it's hard not to feel that if you were really worthy and valuable that these things wouldn't have happened. Please believe me, this just isn't so. You are worthy and deserving of love, both then and now. I failed you. Summer, I hope you'll accept my heartfelt regret for these and the unlisted harms that I've done you. Should you ever want to talk about any of this, please give me a call. If I can ever be of any help to you as a friend, I'd be honored. And then, P.S., I'm sending a similar letter to Erica since my actions have also harmed her. I didn't hear anything right away. And uh, she graduated from high school, and I got to invited to graduation, and I went. And that fall, after her graduation, word came from Arizona that uh, her biological father had uh, died out there. He died an alcoholic death. He hemorrhaged to death from esophageal varices on a couch in a flop house with a bottle of vodka the way we go. And a few days later, I got a phone call from Summer, and she says, Mike, says, you remember that letter you wrote me? I said, sure I do. She says, you know, I was always hoping I'd get that letter from my dad. And since he'll never be able to send it, I think God had you send it for him. I get to be part of a chain of healing here. See, I go out, I'm part of God's recycling plan. I go out, and I, I, I'm not a sociopath or a psychopath. I've always lived a life based on good intentions. I never wanted to, you know, do you want to terrorize children? Of course not. But I don't see that. I just see what I want. And so what happens is that in the process of cleaning up my garbage, it gets turned into something that can be useful and helpful to others. And so God re recycles my garbage, provided I will take it and put it in his hands. Uh, a couple years later, I got to go to uh, her wedding. And uh, I'll uh, let her tell you how that was. 
Michael, thank you so much for sharing my day with me. It seems like just yesterday you were chasing us around, bopping us with those foam bats. Those were such great times. I'm glad you're here to see me all grown up. The day wouldn't have been the same without you. Hope your holidays are wonderful. Please continue to keep in touch. Love and kiss this summer. God's plan, God's world is better than anything I've ever had in mind for myself. I was the guy that used to look in the mirror at the bar and pound on the bar and go, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And, you know, I'm here to tell you this afternoon from the bottom of my heart, thank God it's not fair. Thank you.